this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. So have you thought about what you might buy yourself after you sell your company? I mean, I don't want to debase selling your company into some monetary objective, making it all about the money. But I do think it's worth thinking about what trophy you might buy yourself to commemorate your success. I mean, it can take a lifetime to build a company. And it's important that there's something on your desk or in your driveway or something you can point to as a physical manifestation of the success you've achieved. And my next guest, Zane Hassan, took that to heart. He went out and bought himself a Ferrari. Now, you don't have to buy yourself anything quite so outlandish as a Ferrari, but you should do, I think, something to really remember what you've achieved. Could be a trip, could be a volunteer experience, could be just something that you will always remember to commemorate that success you've enjoyed. And my next guest did exactly that. He started a company called National Insurance Consulting Group, or NICG, in 2014. Built it up to a couple million dollars in revenue, good for a spot on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing companies in America. When he figured the company was worth in the sort of six to eight times EBITDA range, because there was a lot of consolidation going on in his industry, he decided that the time was right to strike and he sold his company. A couple things to be on the lookout for in this episode. Listen to how he got comfortable taking shares as a currency for part of the sale of his company. Listen also to the mistakes he candidly admits to in giving equity to an employee and how he would use a cliff in future if he was going to share any equity or options with a potential employee or partner. You'll also hear him describe the effects of accretion or when a big company buys a little company, they can almost never lose because of the magic of accretion. And he'll talk a little bit about that. It's called an accretive acquisition. Um, He worked with a business coach and really found out a nice calculation you can use to figure out when the right time to sell your company is. He'll describe that. And finally, he'll share a few little tasty pearls of wisdom that should be included in your confidential information memorandum or SIM, which is the document you're going to use or your M&A professional will use to sort of merchandise and sell your company. Here to tell you how he did it is Zane Hassan. Zane Hassan. Welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Yeah. So you were in the insurance business. I was. Yeah, you were. Tell me about the the business that you started. It was in sort of employee benefits. Is that right? Yeah. So it's um, really, if you think of insurance brokers, which I know is not the most boring. I mean, it is, sorry, it is the most boring. (laughs) Probably industry most people even think of, but it's something everybody needs, right? Everybody needs insurance. Um, my specialty and background was I went straight out of college, worked at Cigna Healthcare, and I okay. was working with companies that were working with brokers, but working with companies that were between 25 and 250 employees. And essentially, it was, it was around the time the Affordable Care Act had come out. So there was a lot of questions, a lot of employers didn't know what to do. And um, there were, I I'd sort of noticed being at Cigna, there was this misalignment of interest, meaning like an insurance broker, the healthcare costs continue to rise year over year, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of becoming a, an event for most business owners. It's certainly a challenge as an entrepreneur to afford health insurance. Um, and the insurance companies the, and, and the broker, the broker's compensated based on whatever is good for the insurance company, not necessarily mm-hmm. whatever is good for the client. 
So I spent four years at Cigna and then two years at Guardian so I could learn everything I could about the, the industry. And I went looking everywhere for a business model that really aligned to the employer where the compensation for the broker was on what's the best interest for the client. And there weren't any. So I, hmm. that's what I did. I created my own firm. It's, it is an insurance broker, but it's called a consulting firm because we don't get paid like a broker. So yeah, what was the business model? How was it unique from a typical broker's? Sure. So a typical broker would be called, let's say it's 5% of the healthcare premium, right? So as healthcare costs go up, the natural incentive for that broker is to allow it to go up because that's, sure. that's how they're continuing to get raises. Our model was we're going to do a per employee per month fee and we won't take commissions. It will be a transparent fee. So now that ad actually gave us the initiative and desire to say, not only are we not aligned to increasing your costs, we also didn't accept bonuses. Bonuses were a, you know, a huge amount. So those bonuses based on the profitability of your clients, which if you think about it as a, an entrepreneur or business owner, you don't want to be profitable to an insurance company, mm -hmm. right? But the broker, their job is to make it profitable and then to drive more volume. So we didn't accept those bonuses. Our whole model was to really transform an insurance brokerage to make it to where... Um, we wanted to be a consulting firm, but the model was that we wanted it to be recurring. And we figured if it was based on the employee count, as the business grew, then we would continue to grow recurring revenue. So we had a flat per employee per month. And that way they knew we have no incentive to drive their costs up. Got it. And so I don't know anything about the insurance business, but my guess is that given that it was a flat monthly fee, it benefited you to keep the premium or to keep the insurance with the same provider. So you didn't have to do all the paperwork of, or, did, or am I getting it wrong? Did, was there kind of an incentive to, to switch and shop it around every once in a while? So that's a, that's a great question. Our whole thing was today we look at insurance and if you think about insurance, you're just sort of like, I'll use the auto insurance example, right? You pay and you got your deductible, and then it's like you're, but if you actually use your deductible, then your premium goes up, right? So what we were doing was what's called, that's, that's what I'll call the fully insured model, meaning you're, you're buying insurance. And then there's alternate funding or self-funding, which sort of came out for companies that are 50 employees and up. Our specialty was that. And the reason why is it was really, it's the, what we'll look at is like, it's the, you think of the supply chain of how healthcare is delivered. Well, that is the, the misalignment I described at the broker level, it occurs at every level of how healthcare is delivered mm. and healthcare costs continue to rise. That's a, that's a deeper conversation. I don't want to, you know, take it down too far down to the details of that. But our model was to say, we can help businesses go from paying insurance companies and what we'll call illiquid operating expenses to not only reducing the cost, but they can retain and turn that into where that becomes immediate cash flow. It'll drive EBITDA because we're, we're actually driving in, we're making a more efficient healthcare plan. We're not usually just keeping it with the same carrier. In fact, we almost always change the carrier and we're developing a three or a five year roadmap of where we want to get them to be at the, in the, at the end. Cause instead of year over year increases, our models typically driving about a three to 5% reduction year over year. The carriers must hate you guys. <laughs> They don't love us. Um, it's that's for sure. And candidly, a big part was we didn't go on to a bunch of shows to say our business model, because I do know two other people that operate similar. Once I did my business, they created businesses similarly huh. and the carriers wouldn't pay them. Um, even though they had, they had revenue, they had accounts, but once the carriers found out what their destination was, which was, we call it to try to get them freed of the carrier. Um, then, if they found that out publicly, we had to kind of keep a low radar because there's 3.2 trillion. That's 18% of our GDP spent on healthcare. There's a lot of power in making sure things don't change if they don't want it to. Yeah, for sure. So you did something quite interesting as I understand it. Um, and you hired a chief operating officer. Can you talk a little bit about what triggered that decision and, yes. and sort of what stage of the lifestyle you were at? Yeah, so absolutely. And so I started the business and when I started it, it was bootstrapped and my first 82 meetings were rejections. 
So, meetings with who? Like company CEOs, owners? CFOs. Okay. Like, yeah. you know, it was actually executive meetings where I was there to talk about what the value we could provide. And I was by myself. I had my executive assistant, you know, it was early, early on. And um, I, I think I overestimated how easy I assumed it would be because I wasn't in the broker role, right? I was, I was really working at Cigna at the carrier mm-hmm. side. And so, but I was joining the broker on a lot of their presentations. The part I didn't see is how you build rapport. How do they get to that meeting? And, and so, because I was doing the presentation and helping them win cases. So I assumed that must mean it'd be easy for me to start that business. Right. That was a big lesson. It was not easy at all. Um, I think probably at rejection 42, I probably would have been ready to throw in the towel. My wife actually was the one who said, no, keep going. Um, my 83rd employer, the reason I, I hired, um, he was the New York Times chief revenue officer. And it was randomly how we got connected. Um, but he knew someone who I knew. And essentially, I just solved a payroll problem for a 3,200 employee company. I, I found them a vendor, nothing to do with healthcare. And he reached out to me and he was interested in how I solved that problem. I saw that he was the chief revenue officer of the New York Times. And I was like, okay, I feel like the biggest issue I have is at the time I was 27. Hmm. I'm talking to employers and saying, trust me with your $8 million of healthcare spend. So if I had someone that had 20 plus years, he was a West Point grad, you know, who could help. It didn't even matter if he had knowledge of insurance because I knew everything that there was no at the time about insurance, but I needed that. Um, the credibility that comes with having someone sure. that shows experience. And so I've, I've had him come in and our 83rd meeting was very deliberate where I had a staffing company business owner interview him and she became our first client, which was a quarter million in revenue um, and 450 employees. And so, sorry, you, I, I get the, the idea of having gray hair. How did he, so he actually, this chief revenue officer of the New York Times actually joined your company as an employee. Is that right? Yeah. Well, as a, as a partner. Yeah. As a partner. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how did you guys work out the, the economics of that? Um, you know, he was obviously giving up a lot of salary and potential yes. earnings. How did you figure out the, uh, the value he was bringing in and what slice of the company he was, he would get. So that's a great question. And, um, not, not with, uh, in my personal experiences, I should have done a lot more, uh, thinking about that because when you start, you think, or I was thinking, I just need revenue. My company's probably not worth much. And so, you know, I, my, the model was he was actually, he was generous enough that he said, um, don't, don't, you don't have to agree to it up front. He came down, he was from New York. He came down to visit. We closed that deal that day, right? So for day? him, the, the, the quarter million dollar first account, that was I his see. first day meeting me. And I, I shrugged off my shoulders like it wasn't a big deal. It was a huge deal, right? I dropped him off at his hotel and I'm like, don't go. He, Cause he was going to stay and leave the next morning. I said, don't fly out tomorrow morning. He was like, what do you mean? I was like, just stay for another day. I called the client, my new client, right? And I explained to her, because she really wanted him to join the team. She liked him. And I was like, I think everything went well. Can you refer me to anyone? She set up nine referrals in the next 30 days. He didn't go back home for 30 days. And we wrote eight of those nine accounts. So did he give up his job before he came down to pitch you that, that day, gig? Um, that so gig? actually, he, he was the chief revenue officer of the New York Times about six weeks before him and I had first connected. Okay. At that point, so he had, he had left, retired. Okay. Essentially, he was. That was his plan was to retire. Got it. That's helpful for sure. So, how did you go back? How did you figure out how to slice up the the equity in the company? What he would, what he would be. He actually made a recommendation of fifteen percent, um, and there wasn't a vesting schedule. My personal, what, what I wouldn't have, I don't wouldn't say I would have changed the fifteen percent as much as I would have had a vesting schedule to make sure it was earned. For folks who don't know what a vesting schedule is, describe that for, for, for folks. Sure. So a vesting schedule would be a, if I'm trying to make sure that someone who comes on provides real value and, you know, at the upfront, it's really hard to get to know you, uh, to know how well you know a business partner until you're in mm-hmm. the trenches with them every day, building a business. So a vesting schedule, what I see typically from studying, personal studying was that the norm was, it's called a 12 month cliff. So your first year, you got the, if I'm offering 10%, let's say with a 12 month cliff, that means 
your first 12 months, you're not going to get equity. Once you hit 12, month 12, then you get your first. Um, so it, it's a four-year resting schedule, you know, 10% 12-month cliff. So your first 12 months, you now have 2.5% equity. And then you can do it where it vests monthly or vests annually, meaning you're gaining more equity each month at that point. The cliff to me is the most, in my, my lens, is the most important part because it gives you that 12-month window where let's say everything on their resume looks amazing and their background looks amazing. But you find out when you're in the trenches and you're in there and you're, they're not carrying the weight, you're trying to talk to them and it just doesn't seem like it's working out. You haven't already given them equity. So it sort of gives you that trial time period to actually work with them. How did you learn that lesson? In this case, it doesn't sound like the New York Times guy stuck around very long. That's right. He didn't. Um, but I actually learned that lesson more so when I was looking to, um, I, I, I was always reading a lot because I went from starting, I went from corporate as a sales rep to a founder, which is a big change. Mm. And I wanted to, like, I, I knew I didn't know leadership. There was a lot I didn't, in my lens, I didn't know. So I was trying to read and then I was looking up raising capital. And in, when I, I read a book called Venture Deals, and in that book, it actually talked about vesting schedules um, and the concept of, and, and just in general about the entrepreneurship and why those work. And I think a part of it was also when, when he asked me the question of how I was going to lay out equity, I started to Google, how do you lay out equity with a co-founder or with uh, someone, you know, in a startup? And it, it typically led me down different vesting schedule, like dialogues. I didn't have a good coach or mentor at the time. So what is, uh, give me a sense of how big you got, uh, this company before you decided to sell, like, you know, whatever metric you want to use for size, revenue or profit or number of employees, whatever. Sure. So I'll go, I will just use revenue. Um, sure. I mean, cause we, our first year I was, this was, only, it was a pretty fast ride. Um, I found it in July of 2014 and, um, we were acquired in July of 2019. Wow. So it was literally five years. Um, we, it was first year, no revenue, no clients. Uh, so, you know, but then second year, it, so in, I, I don't know the exact year over year, but here's where we ended. We were essentially at 2.3 million in recurring revenue. Um, and in 2019, we were number 667 on the Inc. 5,000. Fantastic. That's, that's phenomenal growth, especially without, um, you know, uh, starting from scratch, right? Where you're not, you're, you're totally starting from the beginning. What, as you look back over that five years, it, would you point to any one kind of inflection point or any one strategic decision that you made that, that you think made a huge difference? Yeah, so I would point to it. There's, there's a number um, that I made and didn't make that could have led to huge differences. Um, I would say a big aspect was I had this fear um, at this point, because once we had built up the, the chief revenue officer of the New York Times, him and I had built up a client base, I had this fear of what it'd be like doing it alone. Um, and so the moment he came, I remember he came in and he was like, um, at that, he was, I'm not adding any value. I don't feel like this is where I should be. And um, at that time, I was so concerned about whether or not, because I hadn't made a real sale on my own, if you think about it, right? I had 82 meetings, my 83rd where he was there, first client, he was there. So from that first year, all the revenue, I was associating a lot more value to his presence. Hmm. Um, and that, that whole concept of being able to, a, a lot of it was, if I would go back, I would say I would have more meetings where I was not bringing him but it would give me the chance to say, okay, he's got a lot of experience doing meetings. Let him give me feedback and kind of coach me in the process hmm. and not rely on the long longevity because we didn't know each other well enough. And I would also say, I would have asked him, what is his long-term goal out of this? Because that was one of the things, it just went so quick and looking for a solution because we were really in pain in terms of financially. Like we were either bankruptcy or finding a client. And if we didn't find a client, we probably had 90 days left. Why would you have asked him about his long-term goal? It would have helped me get a better understanding um, from upfront as to what kind of equity stake someone should have and how I should look at it. Like, are they going to 
want to learn insurance? Are they trying to build something that's long lasting, that's really going to last and be a big enterprise, which was, that was my goal. I wasn't building it to sell. Um, but you know, that's a lot of those questions weren't asked in the beginning. I just didn't have that business maturity at the time. What did you come to learn about his motivations? So I think his motivations were pure. He saw that there was a lot of value being added and you know, I, I still, and we're very close today. I think he's a good guy. And genuinely he saw, I didn't need him. He saw there was a burden. He was very expensive and he saw it was costing me a significant amount of money. And, and from his lens, he sat me down and he said, you'll get someone for the same price that you're giving me for that has significantly more experience. Um, and you know, when I look back on it now, I actually, I, I think he's right. So it was, what, but at the, at the moment, it felt, I felt like I was crushed. I didn't know how we were going to move forward. You do go forward. I did, in my experience, you do go forward. It just doesn't, it didn't feel quite, it wasn't as fun. And I sort of realized a big part of my journey is I do enjoy having someone in the trenches with me. Hmm. That's interesting insight for sure. So you say you weren't building to sell. You're only five years in and on a really nice growth trajectory, made the Inc. 5000. Uh, what triggered you to want to sell? Sure. So I actually, I had been approached our industry, the insurance industry has a very, especially the insurance brokerage industry has a, a big gap because millennials don't want to join. Um, at least the studies show that the millennials don't want to become insurance brokers. It's hmm. interesting. And so with that, there's a lot of baby boomers that are retiring and there's a huge um, gap of not only skilled workers, but there's a huge gap of, of future roles that, no one knows where those are going to be filled. So multiples, private equity sort of really jumped into this industry about the same time, or about a couple of years before I started my firm. I didn't even, I didn't know that. I was starting my firm because it was what I knew I could add value to businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to add that value to businesses. But with the multiples coming in, I got approached by a public company um, in my, roughly my third year. And they had made an offer. And I turned it down. Um, and the reason I turned it down at that time, I did have a coach and a mentor. And at that time, and it, they had said, if you get an offer for your business, this was their, their advice. And you would, if you, if you say no to that offer, think of it like you're taking a loan out because I didn't come from money. So it was really self-built completely. So they're like, you're taking a loan out from the bank to buy your business for that price. If you would do that, then it's okay to say no, but if you wouldn't do that, you should really think about that offer. That's a neat analogy. I never heard that before. And I, I, so there was a time period where at the beginning at that, I, I, I was ready. I was, I turned that deal down and I still wanted to keep growing. Um, two years later, I had started another business, which was an HR outsourcing, HR technology, like essentially outsourced payroll, um, outsource benefits, all the side of, of like, if you think of an ADP or a pay loss or any of these HR technology companies sure. that we all typically as an entrepreneur, my experience was I hired my executive assistant. I asked them to become my HR director. I asked yeah. them to run payroll. And next thing I know, they know everything about how much everyone's making. And it's pretty easy for them to come up and ask for an additional income. So part of that, that I, which is this real story of what happened to me, um, and they were a valued member of the team, but the income request was certainly mm -hmm. much higher than what I was comfortable doing. And I was like, man, I wonder how many other businesses, business owners, other entrepreneurs would deal with this. Cause this is, this is an issue. It'd be so nice to have some outsourced company who does payroll really well, because it's not fun to do. And our, the, the, the ROI didn't feel like it was in entering payroll data. And that way I didn't have to worry about, you know, anyone seeing how much everyone was getting paid. So this was the genesis behind this new business, which was taking your eye off the, the not eye off the ball, but, but certainly spreading yourself thin. Go back to, if you wouldn't mind, um, the original offer. Um, can you talk about what the offer was either at an aggregate amount or on a multiple of, of EBITDA? Uh, yeah, absolutely. What, what so were they offering? That offer would have been essentially five times EBITDA. And it would have been the, the concept of what they were really looking for is it would have been with five years later, I would have gotten a multiple of revenue growth because they were saying 
I'm growing. They wanted me to run um, a local office. And but the, the, the biggest aspect for me was I was so, I just hit growth. So like, I didn't see that as um, attractive or not attractive. It was like, I can't think about selling right now. There's so much I want to get done. So to be clear, they, they were offering you five times EBITDA for, for the, the, the EBITDA that you had, that you were creating at that time. Um, and then Which what was, was minimal to be, okay. just, just so you know, the EBITDA was very low. It would have been pro forma EBITDA, meaning they would have said under our ownership, what would your EBITDA look like? I see. Um, and then taking a multiple of that, which is certainly much larger than my real, um, you know, tax return net income. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and feel free to ask me. I know, I know it's for a lot of people, it's not the, this isn't the normal language, right? I have this language because of what I went through about mm-hmm. pro forma EBITDA. And, and I'm happy to explain in more depth, but the bottom line, when I look at the number, when I was looking at the number, I was like, it wasn't a big number because we weren't, we were in growth stage. So I was investing in growing. Yeah. We weren't very profitable at okay. the time, not in year three. Got it. Okay. So it was a relatively modest uh, amount of money up front, but it sounded like there was some future payment that I'm, I'm not clear about. So they not only were going to pay you five times perform EBITDA, but there was some future payment. What was that tied to? So that would have been tied to, there, there were a number of hurdles. If I hit a certain amount of growth, um, then I could achieve different like ratios of what a multiple of revenue would have been. Okay. So saying, okay, you grow, because they looked at it like you're doing sales, really, you're building your client list. If you can build your client list, well, instead of making the investment up front, um, because that, what they were looking at is they're saying, we believe long-term will make it appealing enough where in their minds, they're like, that way you're not feeling like you're forfeiting the future. Mm. So they, they were laying out a, um, if you hit these certain hurdles, you'll still get paid really well in the future. And at that point in time, I was, even though the difference between three years and five might seem, it's not that big of a difference, but I think when you're, um, and for those that are entrepreneurs, when you're, when I, when I was in there every day, felt like I was learning more than corporate would have taught me in a month Hmm. because I had like eight job titles that I was wearing that weren't formal. But when we, at that time I had two employees who were three people. Right. So small number of people, when we sold, I had six. So it was not a huge, my other company, the HR um, outsourcing company had eight when my insurance agency had six. Hmm. So just in terms of the revenue per employee, um, we were significantly larger on the insurance agency and by, by our fifth year, our, you know, profitability, our EBITDA, Pro forma, but it was significantly larger. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's helpful in terms of why you turned down the, the first offer. Um, and at that sort of stage, um, and I also understand why you were tempted to sell because you had this other, you know, business on the side that was growing quickly. Um, but was there a, a kind of a straw that broke the camel's back that made you, made you proactively get on your front foot and start selling the insurance brokerage? Yes, there was. So there was a point where I had sold a lot of a number of clients and I had to replicate and truly scale. And I was focused on, okay, scaling meant I had to find a way to train a sales force. So I had my first sales rep that I had hired and I was trying to train that sales rep in sales. I realized through the experience and and extremely credentialed you know, actually had the experience of being a sales rep, a sales leader and a sales executive. Um, but benefits is a, it's almost like the, the, for my, my lens, it's almost like, um, like being an engineer, right? You can be an engineer, but if you're going to go sell the services, then you have to understand, you really like to sell it and sell it well. I mean, these are usually multi-million dollar expenses, so they're not done. The sales cycle is about 18 months for a new client, hmm. typically. So it's not done that like in a very short period. You're asking them to fire someone they currently typically like, their insurance broker, in order to hire you. And um, to get that done where someone else could feel comfortable being able to do it, 
that scale scale was going to be when I could actually get sales reps out there. So I wasn't having to do all the selling. And when I realized that that wasn't viable, that the deals weren't going to get sold without me, I started to look for people in the industry, all of them that were very talented, own their own business or had sold their own business. Hmm. And that's the point. So I sort of reached this, this point of understanding this business, the insurance agency was only going to grow as large as I could personally sell and my team could maintain. And that's, of course, going to hold you back in terms of the value of your company in the eyes of an acquirer because they realize they've got to bring you along with the deal. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's so right. You, and that's why there were ahead. no deals that... Uh, so realistically, the concept of what, what I would have loved to have done was say, you built a company that it's acquired and you don't need to go with it. But that isn't how the, the model worked. It was the, the deal I accepted and every, you know, I, I hired an investment banker um, and went through the whole uh, full process, an auction. And in that process, none of the deals, we had eight LOIs. Hmm. All eight required that I stay on. What did you think? Okay, that's helpful. I want to dig into that um, in a moment. What did you think the company was worth? So, couple, more than a couple of million dollars in in revenue, profitable, growing. Did you have a sense of the range of multiple you thought you might you might be in? I did. So, I'd done a lot of research. There were some organizations and investment bankers that were very specific to this industry. Um, so, I knew that based on our size and based on the young, young demographic is a huge attractive factor where they apply a higher multiple. If the the young demographic of your employees or of the of companies? Me, of of the, the guy making the sales. They call it the producer or the rainmaker. Okay. Okay. Um, so if it's a young producer, then that means that their, their tenure of being able to bring them on board, they're likely going to have a much longer career. Sure. And so the, the multiples I, what I was looking at were between six and eight times pro forma EBITDA. That's where um, I, was, I was informed that that's what I should be expecting. And when you say pro forma EBITDA, can you just clarify what you mean versus, of course, EBITDA for those uh, who may not be familiar with the acronym, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which is an expression <laughs> of profit before tax. Um, what do you mean by pro forma EBITDA? So I mean, um, if I look at our you know, the, the kind of immature, we were running business on an immature finance, like we didn't have a, a CFO, right? So um, if we're looking at the financials and I was looking at my annual tax return and it said net income of, I don't know, 600, then I would, it's a matter of, okay, my, I'm running my business, sort of a lot of personal expenses through it. So take all of those expenses that are personal and apply it with the mentality of, let's say I'm not the owner of this company, mm -hmm. but the revenue is continuing. So someone else now owns this company. What expenses are still going to apply? Got it. And, and then and we've when, talked when about you subtract those out. Okay. We've talked about that on the show uh, as adjusted EBITDA. And it sounds like it's the same so, thing. So yes, that would be the same, yeah, or normalized exact same thing. Got it. Got it. Okay. So take me through the process. You hired an, an M&A professional to, to, mm -hmm. to take the business to market. Someone who specializes, it sounds like in insurance agencies. Um, what was that process like? So it was, there were two big ones. I called both. One was much These larger. These are the two big ones, meaning the two M&A Two firms? investment bankers, okay. two M&A okay. um, advisors. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was at the point where I had already reached out and I had peers that had sold their firms. So other insurance agency owners that had sold, I um, heard and looked up in private equity. Um, it was insane. The amount of private equity firms that had entered into this industry. Hmm. I mean, every big name I'd ever heard of and, and the amount of transactions that were occurring where four or five years earlier, the actual value of a firm would have been about 30 or 40% what the value was when I sold and they continue to rise. Wow. wow. So the, it's just, and, and to me, that was just a matter of luck that, because again, when I started, I wasn't starting knowing I was going to sell the business or even knowing multiples were going to go up, but it was going up really rapidly. 
And so it became where I was hearing from everybody I was talking to that was, you know, I guess you'd call them competitors, but it's a friendly, it can be a friendly business, especially out of state areas. And a lot of my clients are out of state. So I was hearing from most of the, my peers had sold their agencies. So I was asking them why, like, why are you selling your firm? And their explanation was the multiples were so high that, and they would usually been in business significantly longer, third, fourth generation businesses that they're, they didn't feel like um, succession planning or really um, that there was a way to get a value internally that would compare to a third party or whether it's private equity or the, the, the investment bankers, the M&A advisors, they explain that there's a couple of tranches of buyers that are in this market. The public buyers, then there's the, um, the public, like just giant public companies, right? Mm-hmm. So then from there, it would be the, the billion plus. So they are private equity backed, but they're a billion in revenue and up. So the stock was a little less um, risk would be the concept of that. And then there was the private equity, which were under 500 million in revenue. Um, so stock would have an opportunity and was typically growing at about 15% to 20%. So a lot of these agency owners were saying that they felt they couldn't grow their firm anymore at 15 to 20%. And they sold because the private equity firms were continuing to grow and they were growing because if you think of this model, and I'll just use an example, the publicly traded markets they're actually selling it. Uh, the values are between 12 and 17 times EBITDA. So if you take, if you think of the concept of just aggregating a bunch of insurance agencies, and let's say you're buying at six to eight, like this, the, the value of my firm would have been, or was, right? Then it would be, well, as soon as if they can do it and go large enough in IPO, they know that that's going to drive a significant ROI for everyone, including the investors. And that's the investment thesis. That's the model and the reason they do it. For my model, it was because I had this, this very distinct other business, but we had almost 90% of our clients were clients of both businesses. I was going to ask you, is there any crossover between clients from one business to the next? And so how did you stick handle that piece uh, with prospective buyers that was definitely the most challenging aspect. Um, I started when I talked to the M&A advisor and I said, I want to lay out one thing. And I told, told both M&A advisors because I hadn't selected one yet. I said, I have this other business. I've invested a good amount of what would have been my take-home money into this, into, you know, growing this other business. Um, it's not for sale. So I asked them, I was like, Are, you know, before we even start this process, I need to know, is that going to be a barrier? Because, and I had all these thoughts in my mind. I really thought about the concept and my wife was encouraging me to think about, she's like, this is life changing. Like, don't do this without thinking about it. And so I really thought about it and I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, it has to be where the offer lays out that I can still own that other company. Because it wasn't, to, and from my lens, it wasn't the end game I was hoping for. So I was like, I want to see that end game through this other business. And I saw that almost every client I sold was becoming a client on the other platform. So Got it. I saw so- that as a, a much bigger opportunity. If I could get, call it, this is my mentality. It was, well, what if I could get a giant acquirer to acquire the insurance agency? And, you know, then in that process, every client and every, you know, other insurance broker that I would have as colleagues can sell the solution that my HR outsourcing business company provides. And when I said that to the investment banker, I was very confident. And I was, I said, we don't have to sell my company, but if we're going to do it, that's the only way we're going to do it. And one of the investment bankers said, that's not going to happen. And the other investment banker said, no problem. We'll make it happen. So it made it pretty easy to choose between the two investment bankers. <laughs> got it. Okay. So you got yourself an uh, a professional. Um, what did they do uh, that surprised you in the way they positioned your company? Um, what sort of magic did they pull out of a hat to sort of position yeah. you in, in the eyes of acquirers? 
if I, if you were to ask me to put together what they, they put together this, they call it a SIM, um, a CIM. I'll call that confidential a, a information memorandum. Yeah. That's, that's right. I'll call it an investor deck or like, sure. uh, because that's really, it was a presentation of the firm. Yeah. When I read through that, I was like, oh my God, this looks amazing. <laughs> Where do I invest? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I would never have been able to put that together um, because that, that was, yes, it was them asking questions, but they understood the market. They'd done 116 deals in, in that prior six months. Um, so they like, they, and that's all insurance. They only do insurance. What was it? Zane, in the sim, as you reflect now uh, with some time under the bridge, water under the bridge, what was it in that sim that you were so impressed by? Like what section specifically, what did they say or do that made you think, man, these guys are good? So the a big part was non-generational, meaning it didn't come like it, what money wasn't handed to them. Um, and it was, it was truly self-built, um, the age. And then the year over year, so year over year, what they consider great sales for a um, insurance sales rep or an insurance, they call it a producer, but an insurance sales rep year over year, if you're in the top, like one to 2%, the top even 10%, I'll say, is between 150,000 and 250,000 of new revenue. I was producing between five and 750,000 of new revenue. And so... I didn't know those metrics, you know, and I'm seeing as they put it all together in one comprehensive deck and I'm seeing the hockey stick of the past and I'm seeing how they laid out our, our, our profitability hockey stick and assuming everything stayed the way it was going, it looked like a very scalable business that, or at least like I had significant capacity where at that over 2 million in revenue with six employees significant revenue per employee. And it was year over year, our growth. And then you add that into the awards they had listed that we had won being the Inc. number 667 out of the Inc. 5000. Um, and the fact that uh, we had had a model where it was disrupting, I don't want to say that's, I shouldn't say disrupting, that's probably a overused word. Um, and I don't want to give myself too much credit, it wasn't that good. But it was very different because our model was saying it was catching attention by actually shortening the sales cycle because I was saying, I'm not vested to an insurance company's best interest. You know, Mr. CEO, CFO, I'm vested to your, I only win if you win. And that, that model, that description and the way that the sort of the numbers lay out um, ended up being where when I was reading it, I certainly understood why they were buying my firm. And especially, sorry about that. It's kids. I guess that, that's one of the, one of the, one of the perks. Uh, I'll, I'll be there, sweetheart. I'll be right there. Okay? I, I love you too, sweetheart. Um, I'll be right there. That is one of the perks of being able to work from home, but I, I apologize for that. Yeah, no, it's My great. I love it. I love it. I love it. I mean, in, 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 in seriousness, how selling your company um, how has that impacted your family life? So that's a great, it's, it's the moment that the company was actually sold and the cash came in, it was a, I mean, I went, I, it was all my net worth was tied into something illiquid. So not only did I have time for family, it, my mental state changed. I went from this mental state where I couldn't really sleep all day, all night. All I could think about was business and I, I had tried numerous times to balance work and life. And although I still owned another business, it was so different because I had a financial foundation. I just had two kids. Well, my wife, had a, my wife and I had two kids. Um, and so it was, I think a big part of it was knowing the amount of like the stress goes away, not completely because, you know, I, I was in a earnout, meaning they required me to stay on. And I would have probably wanted to stay on either way because the, the compensation, I do have an, an earn out, which is almost like a second um, liquid, liquidation event if I hit certain goals. Um, but it was a, it just changes everything because I didn't come from any money and having that financial foundation um, 
I bought a Ferrari. I bought a couple nice things, you know. Nice. <laughs> and it was, it, it, it was, it, there, there certainly there are upsides and downsides to losing control, but the financial foundation was so important for my family, for my peace of mind. And I've actually slept. I can, I can go to sleep at eight and not have business on my mind. And I can honestly say that I, that would have never been able to occur, I don't think. Fantastic. So let's get into the deal with stuff. You had eight offers. Um, what was your reaction when you saw the breadth of what was on offer? So it was, I, my, my business partner and I, and I had a business partner who was relatively early on. He'd been with me for two years. Um, so he had a small amount of ownership. But um, this way, is not the was, New York Times guy. This is a different guy. No, different guy. Um, and it, but the majority, the majority of the business was, and, and we had the most of our personnel was not the same personnel. So the six people we had at the end, um, one had been with us for three years. But I, you know, the only constant factor from an employment was me. Um, and so one, it was. I was looking at them. I had met with each of the buyers. So what the, the auction process they set up was they said, okay, we're going to have you initially talk verbally with each one. Then we're going to select eight. And there, because there were more than eight to choose from, they're like, we're going to select eight. So I worked with the, the, the M&A advisor gave me their, their personal opinion on what would fit my, what I was looking for and um, the different buyers that were out there. And then we narrowed that down to eight that they said, okay, two days in a row, we'll be, it was a hotel. And so it was like four, um, essentially hour and a half long meetings each day, which were really the real sales pitch. It was my business partner and I, and we were pitching what, how we build the business, who we are. They asked us questions. It was more, it was less business and more personal, but um, because they had already seen the information, the, the uh, sim or the, the investor deck had already gone out. So they came with questions that were very specific. And from there, it was really getting to know us because the insurance business is very highly relational and they want to know how we did it differently. You know, what did we think we could, how did we think we could, our growth model would look like. And each one sort of asked, so what would it take for us to get to the next step? How did you answer so, that question? It, each one had a very different answer because they were, each buyer was very different. And um, some I was just meeting for the first time. Others had, I had known just because I had known of them. Um, but it was, essentially, I had a feeling they'd all come in. I didn't want to, I didn't talk financials in, in that meeting because I was instructed not to. So I sort of assumed that that would be done by the investment banker, which is how it was. He, the, he handled all of the actual multiples, the details. Um, he handled the entire transaction all of the interaction with the buyer. And I, I should have probably said that earlier, but all interaction from lining up buyers, deciding them. And then, so he was the middleman for all communication. I think if I had now looking back, cause we've now done a couple of deals where we acquired firms since I've joined the new organization. Um, and I'm, I'm a managing director at um, a company called risk strategies, which is the company that acquired my firm. I now have seen how much, of a role that investment banker played because it's so fast that we can decide not to buy a firm based on someone's personality. So he really was, you know, I look back on it now and I joke with him and I'm like, you know, he, he didn't treat me like a client. He treated me like I was like, he was my boss and he told, he was telling me what I had to do. But if he didn't, I probably never would have gone through a deal. <laughs> Why? What were the sort of the things that you would have been tempted to answer and he instructed you not to? Um, so a lot of the things were around the future growth of the insurance business and then the future growth of the HR business. And my passion, what I saw, the scale, he wanted to make sure that it was very focused on the value that was going to be provided to the buyer. And we didn't know at that time whether or not the buyer was going to have um, some type of layout or requirement regarding the HR business. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things that, although it was in the deck, it just had this one page out of 34 pages, one page that said other, this other company and it had the revenue and, and that's it. And so it was like, okay, in case buyers uh, wanted to know more, they were certainly going to ask because it's like, 
okay, I'm reading 33 pages of this insurance agency. And here's this one page of this other business, apparently, that they own. And it's the cap table, which is the ownership structure. So they're each, either, each of them asked me. And during that process, I explained. I said, we're going to win more deals because we have that business. But that business isn't for sale because I've invested a lot of money into it. And if you saw the balance sheet in the P&L, you wouldn't pay what I would require. But what ended up happening is all the buyers came back with this mentality, first verbally saying, because when we had the LOIs, they, they all inclined or, or implied that they were going to have right of first refusal or something aligned to it. So I couldn't just go sell it to some random person. And then as we got close, once we selected and signed an LOI, it got tighter and tighter and tighter. What got tighter? Uh, those provisions. Mm-hmm. the right of first refusal provisions. And um, in terms of like, and I understand, um, you know, because the, the, the whole goal is to make sure it's not the value that, yeah, the value is also in the, the clients and the revenue we had. But if I left, this is a people-based business. Um, it's locking, it's, the goal is to lock me in with golden handcuffs. And because I was pretty stubborn on the idea, I wasn't going to sell that other business. It was to make sure that, if there was a time where it was going to be sold and there was a buyer coming in that I couldn't sell equity or I couldn't sell stock or I couldn't, they had to have approval of that. So what they actually did is we restructured a lot of that business. I had to buy out any other investors and just me and my business partner were the remaining two. So if I look at it from their shoes, they did everything very intelligently, but you know, if I knew that that was all going to happen at the beginning, I may, I may have had a, I love where I'm at. I may have had a different, a, a little bit different, uh, more rigorous approach to ensuring I had before signing LOI really discussed what's this going to look like. But I think my investment banker knew that and knew I was, I might not be that easy to, to sort of trap down and hold down and keep committed. So he managed me and that's, I would say he got us through the deal. And now I, there were the deal going through a deal has a lot of emotion, especially when there's a business partner. There's a lot of emotion on, you know, because things I had the belief I had, I had this belief it was going to be rosy, like exactly what the LOI said is how the deal would end. That's not at all what happened. It ended up really good, but there were issues that were very real um, that came up. Like we had an employee who left who took $700,000 account with him. I'm currently suing the company because that was a violation of his contract. So when you think of that, that's a huge amount of revenue. And that happened in the middle of the deal is not ideal, right? That's like the worst time that can happen. <laughs> but all of those moments end up um, at the end. It didn't, it didn't matter long term because, I mean, whatever happens there, now I, I still have the financial foundation. I feel good. We've got a lot of resources and much more capabilities than I had. So you were expecting six to eight times adjusted EBITDA or performer EBITDA. Were the, the eight offers roughly in that range? That All of them were in that range. In that range. Is in that interesting. And what proportion of the six to eight were they asking, were they offering in cash up front versus sort of, you know, tied to some future performance? That's, sure. So that's a, it was all of it was cash up front, but it was cash or the requirement, depending on the buyer, was 10 to 30% was in stock. So, so there wasn't a whole back of cash, but it was stock and cash. No one okay. was allowing all cash. Uh, so uh, let me just throw, like, let's imagine you had a million dollars of EBITDA. They were offering you six to, let's say they say it was an $8 million offer. Of, of that, a portion would have been in stock of their company. That's right. As, as an example. Okay. That's helpful. And, and how did you get comfortable with putting so much money at risk? In in a, stock. Yeah. Because, because if I'm not mistaken, their stock is not liquid, right? Like That's it's correct. not a publicly traded right. company. So what are your liquidation rights around that? Can you sell it? I cannot sell it when they recap. Then recap. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. And for that, that means when the private equity sponsor, um, changes hands. So usually because the private equity investment is going to come in and, and on average it's five to seven years. Um, and then 
and they then they can they'll sell it. They'll try to sell it to another private equity firm. Um, and so that is the historically in, in our industry that happens really, really frequently. But I got comfortable because every quarter they do, they use a big four CPA firm um, to do an audit and actually do evaluation of the, the stock price. So, and I got all that data and prior detail. And we had one, what was really unique about our buyer that, was, that the other buyers did not have one class of stock. Hmm. That was one of the most important aspects in order for me to be willing to invest in the stock. And it was the only one that had one class. Everyone else had uh, you know, a, lot, a variety of, of classes of stock. Right, right. Interesting. So one class of stock, uh, you had this, I mean, you know, the I don't want to say skeptic, but the, uh, it, it, you know, getting paid that amount of money in cash up front, uh, were you tempted at all to just hit the beach and say, I'm out, I'm, you know, thank you, <laughs> but, but I'm not going to stick around here. I would. So, I mean, you know, if only because my personal expectations, meaning I had not the other business, my personal expectations were much larger. Um, it was, it, to me, it was an early exit. And it was an early exit because I believe those resources would lead to the meaningful end that I wanted through the combination of what I can get there and the other business I owned. So I didn't have a temptation to do that um, at all. Honestly, it was, I didn't even take a, a week off. It was like hmm. the moment it happened, it was like, okay, day one. Um, it felt like day one of a new life where now almost like as if I had, if my parents had money, and they'd give me money. I was starting a business uh, type of thing because it was like, now I've got new goals. I got to get used to what kind of resources we have, but um, I should probably take a vacation. I still have it. <laughs> so, what, uh, it sounds like you're chasing, uh, I don't mean chasing in a pejorative way. I, I mean it, uh, I don't mean it in any way. Just uh, it sounds like you're aspiring to, a goal in the future. What, yes. you know, Gary Vaynerchuk says he wants to buy the New York Jets. Um, what's your sort of end game? So it's, I, I, you know, my, I want operating, I, I'll call it economic independence, where I want to have built and I want to own, but not have to be the CEO or run a business that will drive in at least $10 million in operating cash flow to me personally a year. That's the big, that's the big goal that you're, you're chasing. Yeah. And that, that, oh, that way. So my, my outlook is when I've done that, that means I'll sort of be on like the, the board reviewing the financials, guiding the business. But my portion um, to take home would be around 10 million annually. And that's, it's a big goal. And, you know, if I don't hit it, at least the, you shoot for the stars, you land on the moon, something like that. Right. All right. So, I aspire pretty high. Um, and some of the, one of the things that has helped has been understanding that like, I can't expect everyone around me to aspire to that same level. Um, but it's, that, that's just who I, that's how I've always sort of been. I don't know. I don't have a good reason or explanation for why that number. Um, but it was the concept that I never wanted money to be the reason I didn't do something, but I also felt money won't change me. It, I am who I am and money was only going to, make, it was just going to sort of, um, grow whatever my natural characteristics are. And I, so for me, it was, it was trying to make sure that I could do whatever I wanted to do. And earlier it was 10 million. Does that mean I have to settle there? No, but like, that's, that is the goal. And I always want to set a goal that might not a big, hairy, audacious goal as Stephen Collins writes about. What was life for you like? As Jim a, Collins, sorry. Yeah, Jim Collins. What was life like for you as a, as a child? Uh, what were your circumstances? You, you referenced a sure. couple times you didn't come from money, but just kind of give me a sense of what that was like. So both of my parents um, migrated from Pakistan when they were really, the, my, my dad was, I think, 14 and he came alone, no family. Um, and my mom, she came from, I think she might've been 16 or 17. They met at the University of Maryland. Um, I grew up in, I was born in Washington, DC. Uh, I grew up in Snellville, Georgia. If you're not familiar with Snellville, it's, um, no one really is, but it's a, <laughs> it's about 40 miles east of Atlanta. 
Uh, and it was when I was growing up, I didn't know that I did. I'm being facetious, but like, I didn't really know that it was abnormal not to be white because everybody, I, I mean, I was the only one that wasn't in my elementary school. In heist now that snowball is basically an outskirt of Atlanta. It's changed completely. When I grew up, we would drive four wheelers down the road to you know our girlfriend's houses, or like I I was the only one that had a jacked up truck and wasn't you know a Caucasian guy down there. So um, I didn't know the difference because I was welcomed, but I my parents had very strict you know concepts of work, which was anything I want above my absolute needs, I was going to have to work for. So when I was 12, 13, I got my first job at a car wash and I had maintained jobs throughout. So from, I went to the university of Georgia, I paid my way through college. Um, well, I, I had a scholarship for, but whatever I had to pay for, whether that was room and board or fraternity, I paid for work through, through working. Um, and I think that was a big aspect of what helped me appreciate uh, the ability, like the, what I have, cause I don't look like, I don't look at it like money is something that's always going to be there, but I'm not allergic to it. I certainly aspire to make it where it doesn't create issues, but I, it's one of the things where if I, the, with the, when the money starts coming in, I would look towards adding value to other people's lives with it and really creating more of a nonprofit, um, that would really have a much bigger impact. Cause I think there's a lacking education, um, today in society around finance, entrepreneurship, and sort of the, what I'll call the core values that it takes from EQ and IQ. And I'd really like to start a nonprofit that's heavily focused on that and not have to worry about money at all to do it. So I could really spend my energy on that. Can you describe what it was like to, to tell your parents about the sale of your company? Yes, it was, um, I actually say I'm more proud of, I, I felt better about that moment because when I, I remember telling my dad and my dad saw the car, the Ferrari I bought, and he said, I'm so proud of you um, that you got this car. Cause I, when I was young, I, it was always my dream car. And that moment was like, I don't know how to explain it other than it was, it was more, the money didn't mean anywhere near as much as that moment did that he actually was because the, my dad worked all night as a security guard. And then at, during the day he was in college. So like he literally went, I'm not, and he spent 33 years at Motorola and then that's the only place he ever worked. So, you know, he gave me the opportunity to have a, a, a little bit more of a risk tolerance than he could have had. And while we didn't have a very luxurious life, I think he gave me the core values that I needed to make sure I didn't let money affect me, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure he's very proud of you. <laughs> and lots to come. I, yeah, I hope so. You know, it's, uh, I, I, if, as long as I can add value, that's the focus. Uh, you know, to, uh, I don't think it'll come by chasing money. It'll only come by chasing adding value. Yeah. And, and you made that, made, made that clear. I know people are going to want to reach out to you, Zane, and, and uh, and just connect. Is there a sure. good way to do that? Um, yeah, what's, absolutely. What's so they, they, I, I can just give you my, my, my number. It's my office number and my assistant answers, but she's very, they're very good at you know, getting people to me. It's nine, five, four, two, one, Oh, five, three, zero, zero. Um, and then you can also go to my LinkedIn. So, and it's Zane, Z-A-I-N, Hassan, H-A-S-A-N. Um, you know, look me up on LinkedIn. I spend a lot, I'm, I'm on there a lot. Facebook, same thing. So I'm, I'm engaged in social media. Um, and then I, I can, I, mean, I don't know what the easiest way is, but I'm happy to provide my email. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably, I think that's probably good. We'll get, we'll get people to connect with you through, to, through LinkedIn. Uh, we can put your email in the show notes if you don't mind. And it's easier yeah, than that's audio. Perfect. Yeah. That would be great. Um, and, uh, and look, you know, I, uh, I look forward to a, a, a second round of this interview. I, uh, I think there's probably more to come in the, in the Zane Hassan story. So I appreciate you spending the time with us today. I greatly appreciate the opportunity and I'm glad you got to meet 
meet my daughter, <laughs> right? No, but it was a pleasure meeting you. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I'm a huge fan. Um, I think this, this show has provided me with a lot of value and hopefully this adds value to the listeners. Cool. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.